Welcome to Adventism 101. In this episode, Lyle Southwell will talk about what maths has to do with the Messiah and the cleansing of the sanctuary. We hope this inspires you and strengthens your trust in Scripture. So, grab your Bible and enjoy. So Adventism 101 is pretty much uh, what the description of it is. These are short little presentations that look at what makes Adventists different and why is that important. Also, we want you to be able to go away from here with tools so that you can use to that you can use yourself to be able to share with others uh, the things that we have learned here. So, when we look at Christianity, you'll find that you know amongst Christian churches there are going to be a lot of things that churches have in common with each other. A lot of Christian churches will have a lot of things in common with each other. But what makes Adventists unique, and why is that important? Well, one of the, I guess, a couple of the clues to the answer to that question are going to come in the name Seventh Day Adventist. And of course, Seventh Day, uh, we're probably most famous for worshiping on the seventh day of the week. And later on in this series, we're going to be looking at, okay, why do we do that? Is it just more convenient to worship on Saturday than Sunday? There's been many times when I've been talking to people and they're like, yeah, I'd love to come to your church. I'll be the next Sunday. I'm like, oh, we worship on Saturday. Ah, that's fine. I'll come next Saturday then. And they sort of, they don't even blink because like, well, you know, one day is as good as another. And so that's sort of neither here nor there for them. Does it actually matter? The other part of our name as Seventh-day Adventist is the word Advent, and that refers to the return of Jesus Christ. And that's what I'm going to be particularly looking at this morning. Now, when we talk about the return of Jesus Christ as Seventh-day Adventist, we worship on the seventh day of the week, and we believe that Jesus is coming soon. Now, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to know that Jesus is coming soon today. Uh, you simply have to look out at the world, and we can all see that this world is not going to continue as it has always continued in the past. We live in the most rapidly changing world that has ever existed. But for Seventh-day Adventists, we particularly believe that we are living in the last days and that Jesus is coming soon. And we've been preaching this for, what, 160, 180 years now. Uh, and the reason we've been preaching it that long is because we believe that the, we are living in the time of the judgment. In other words, the judgment is taking place right now. And if the judgment is taking place right now, then that's pretty much the last big event before Jesus comes back. And so that's what we're going to be particularly looking at this morning. And we're going to be looking at a prophecy in Daniel chapter 8. So if you have a Bible, if you have a Bible on your phone, uh, turn over to Daniel chapter 8 and we're going to do a quick run-through of this particular prophecy here. In fact, I'm going to summarize it for you because we have a fairly limited amount of time this morning and I do want to allow for some time for questions. So here's what I want you to do. Over lunch today, I want you to take three or four minutes to read through Daniel chapter 8. Let me summarize it for you. The Daniel chapter 8 is divided into two parts. The first half is a vision that Daniel sees. The second half is the angel Gabriel coming and explaining to him what he has just seen. And of course, that explanation then continues when you go to uh, chapter 9. Uh, that's where it is completed. And so, if you, if you notice down through, you're going to find that the Bible begins by describing a ram having two horns. One is higher than the other, 
And let me see. Here is my clicker. Why is my cl my clicker was working perfectly a minute ago? No, it's not working. All right, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna stand out. Oh, it worked. There we go. Okay, the Bible describes a ram that becomes great. Uh, in the explanation, you find that Gabriel comes along and Gabriel says the ram that you saw having two horns, this is the kings of Media and Persia that are going to uh, take over the whole world. And so this is a, a very common thing that you'll find in Bible prophecy where animals are used to symbolize nations. Uh, you know, if we think of a kangaroo, that's always going to remind us of Australia. If we think of a kiwi bird, that's always going to remind us of New Zealand. If we think of a bald eagle, that's going to remind us of the United States, etc. So there's nothing new about this. It's something that's been around forever. And so a ram with two horns in the Bible, an animal symbolizes a nation. The Bible says that this particular nation are the Medes and the Persians. The next thing that he sees after the Persian Empire is a, is a, is a goat, a male goat that comes charging across the land, going so fast its feet don't even touch the ground. It's got one massive horn in the middle of its eyes. And when Gabriel explains the vision, he tells us that this is the kingdom of Greece and uh, that the great horn symbolizes the first great king of Greece. Who was that, by the way? Alexander the Great. That's right. Good to have some historians here. You guys know your history. Uh, of course, when Alexander the Great died, uh, his kingdom was divided up initially into four separate kingdoms under Cassander, Lysimachus, Ptolemy, and Seleucus. And you find in the prophecy that the horn is broken off the goat and replaced with four horns. And then the Bible says out of one of those four horns, you've got this little horn that grows up and this one becomes... My clicker is going all over the place here. Yeah, this is a bit dodgy. Oh, there we go. Becomes exceeding great. And of course, you go from great to very great to exceeding great. These are greater empires all the way along. Who was it that conquered the Greek Empire? It was the Romans, absolutely. So the Roman Empire came along and conquered the Greek Empire. That's there on the screen, of course, I know that. And then the Bible goes on, and after the Roman Empire, and by the way, for those of you who are particularly interested in history, you'll find a description there of both the uh, Imperial Roman Empire and also the Holy Roman Empire. But if we go over to Daniel, chapter 8, we're going to skip forward here a little bit. And in verse 13, the Bible said, I heard one saint speaking to another saint, said to that certain saint we spoke, how long will the vision be? So essentially, how long is this vision going to be? In verse 14, the answer comes, he said unto me, under 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. And that's where the vision comes to an end. It stops right there with the cleansing of the sanctuary. So we need to understand, if we're going to understand what this vision is all about, we need to understand the cleansing of the sanctuary because Gabriel then goes on to make a couple of really important points here uh, in, let me see here, uh, where are we? Verse 17, he came near where I stood and when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face and he said to me, understand, O son of man, for at the time of the end will be the vision. So this vision is all about what time period? The time of the end. Absolutely. And yet what are we seeing here? Is this the time of the end? No, this is ancient history. 
Medieval history hasn't even started yet, let alone modern history. So this is all ancient history. The Bible says that the prophecy is all about the time of the end. Then you go down to uh, verse 19, the Bible says, And behold, I will make you, this is Gabriel speaking, Behold, I will make you know what shall be in the last end of the indignation, for at the time appointed the end will be. Okay, so the Bible says that the prophecy is all about the time of the end, and yet we've had all of this ancient history. There is only one possible way that you can get to the time of the end in this prophecy. And that is with the 2,300 days. And you're going to say, well, 2,300 days, that's not a very long time period, except that in Bible prophecy, and once again, I'm going to move fast, and I'm going to summarize a whole bunch of stuff. And if you've got questions, and if you want me to show you in the Bible where they come from, happy to do so. But in Bible prophecy, a day symbolizes a year. So now, rather than having 2,300 days, what do you actually have? 2,300 years. Now, that's a long time period, isn't it? So if you take that from anywhere in the Persian Empire where this prophecy starts and go 2,300 years, what you're going to do is you're going to go clean over the top of medieval history and land very solidly in modern history. And so this prophecy... Gabriel says, this is not about ancient history. The ancient history is here given to you to give you confidence in the prophecy. That's its purpose. It builds a foundation. But it's actually all about the cleansing of the sanctuary that happens at the end of the 2,300 days. So we're going to need to understand some things about the sanctuary this morning. This is going to be very important for us uh, because you cannot understand the prophecy without understanding the sanctuary and what the cleansing of the sanctuary is. I'm going to skip forward here a little bit uh, and we're going to talk about the purpose of the sanctuary. The Jewish people call the cleansing of the sanctuary, that particular service, they call it Yom Kippur. Who's heard of Yom Kippur? Yeah? Okay, a bunch of us have heard of Yom Kippur. Uh, They also call it the Day of Judgment. Because for the Jewish people, this is the time of year in which the righteous are divided from the wicked and a fresh start is made. So it's a day of judgment. That's when the you know the righteous are divided from the wicked. That's that's what it's all about. Okay, so let me just uh, I'm going to come over here. I think. Um, Oh, we've moved that. We might see if that'll actually work properly. Let's skip through some slides here. Yep. Okay, so you're going to find that the prophecies of Daniel all run in parallel of each other. There's actually four of them. You'll notice here that in Daniel chapter 7, the judgment and the cleansing of the sanctuary are the same event. Um, We're going to look at the temple. And we're going to use this illustration right here. Okay, so you had two major services in the sanctuary. You had the daily service and the yearly service. And the way it worked was kind of like this. There were a number of different ways, but this is the simplest way. When you sinned, you brought a lamb as a sacrifice. So you would go outside the camp of Israel. This is uh, Moses' one here, so we'll use this one as an illustration. You would call your sheep, you would call them by name because they were your pets. The only way a sheep will come when it's called by name is if you've actually hand-raised it. And then you would start, you would lead it through the camp of Israel and you're walking through the camp of Israel and there's a lamb following you. And what's everybody thinking? Oh, I wonder what he did. Which is a great illustration because you can't hide your sin. Uh, Then you come to this big, wide, open space that is around the tabernacle, the sanctuary right there. And as you go across that really big, wide, open space, you really can't hold your sins. You are are right, right, right out there for everybody to see. There is no hiding of sin 
with God. And this is what God's trying to illustrate. And then you come to the sanctuary and you come in through this door here and now you are surrounded by this wall and that wall is white. And what is white a symbol of in the Bible? Whose purity? You are surrounded by the righteousness, the purity of Christ, and now nobody can see that you are a sinner because Christ has surrounded you with His righteousness. You see what's happening? The symbolism right here. You bring your lamb over here to the north side of the altar. You confess your sins over the head of the lamb, and symbolically your sin is transferred from you to the lamb. What is the wages of sin? And so once the sin goes from you to the lamb, what has to happen to the lamb? Who has to kill it? You do. Does the lamb deserve to die? Did the lamb do anything wrong? No, it's 100% innocent. It dies in your place. Did Jesus deserve to die? Did he do anything wrong? No, he died in our place. And then the priest catches uh, some of the blood of the lamb in a bowl and takes it into the sanctuary and inside the sanctuary, you've got two rooms, the holy place, the most holy place. He sprinkles it here on the, on the curtain in front of the most holy place and on the horns of the altar here. And symbolically, what is, what is taking place here, what is happening, is that your sin is being transferred from you to the lamb, to the blood, to the holy place. Are we all following so far? Now, when you walk back out the doors here, how much sin do you have on you? None. Whereabouts is all your sin now? It's all in there. And it will never, ever, ever have any relevance to you whatsoever at all ever again. It is gone from you. Sound like good news? Yes. Okay, so this is what would happen on a daily basis. Now, once a year, they had this service called the Day of Judgment or the Cleansing of the Sanctuary. And once again, it was rather simple. And the reason they had that, of course, is what's building up in here all year long? Blood. Yeah, by the way, what would, happen, what would happen to that blood in a couple of days? Yeah. It's going to stink, isn't it? You've got this beautiful building full of gold and the blood is going to stink. What is that telling us? Sin stinks. Oh, yes, but it gets better. I'm, I'm probably taking too much time on this. But um, what's this right here? That's incense. And there was a special blend of incense. It would burn with a white smoke. And it would uh, do away, that's the sweet smell of that incense would do away with the stench of the sin. And what is white a symbol of? Whose righteousness? Christ's righteousness covering the stench of our sins. You love the symbolism here? All the way through. Okay, but you're getting all of this that is building up here. So once a year, they clean it out and the whole nation would make a fresh start. You'd have a day of judgment. You'd separate the wicked from the righteous and you would have a fresh start. So how did that actually work? Well, to answer that question, oh, that's my lamb, by the way. I raised, I, I raised that one on a bottle uh, from birth and it was the sweetest little thing that you ever came across. Okay, we're going to talk about two guys right now, but let's go to Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16, and we're going to make this super simple. Leviticus chapter 16, the Bible says, <coughs> uh, in verse 7, When the day of judgment came, there were two goats that were brought. 
In verse 7 it says, He will take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron will cast lots. That's basically flipping a coin on the two goats. One for God and one for the scapegoat or for Satan. So very simply, on the day of judgment, you bring two goats. One is for God, one is for Satan. That makes sense to everybody? Yep, that's, that's fairly clear and simple. And then the Bible goes on. By the way, which one of those goats is going to get killed? Okay, one is killed, the other is banished. Okay, so Leviticus chapter 16 is your homework for after you read Daniel chapter 8. One is killed, one is banished. Which one is killed? Yes, because Jesus died for us, right? The flawless one, yes, the one that symbolizes Jesus Christ. The Lord's goat is the one that is killed. Okay, and for what purpose? Notice what it says in Leviticus chapter 16 and verse 15. It says, Then he will kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring his blood within the veil and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullet and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. And he shall make an atonement for what? Is he making atonement for an individual? He's making atonement for the high priest or, you know, some other person, other random person? No, he's making atonement for the holy place. So this is the holy place. This is the most holy place. Why is he making atonement for this? Because that's where the sin is. The sin is not on the people. The sin is right here. Sorry, the sin is right here. And when he sprinkles the blood right here... Then he makes atonement for this. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. This is the visible presence of God. This is the law that was broken. Are we all following so far? And so when God looks down at the law that was broken, what is he looking through? What's sitting here on the mercy seat? The blood. When Jesus looks at the law that was broken, he views it through the blood of Jesus Christ, who is our intercessor. Isn't it amazing? Okay. All right. So how does it actually work? Real simple. Let me go back here. Let's talk about our two guys. We've got two guys right here. Uh, during the year, they've both done some sins. Everybody sins, right? And let's say that this guy here, when he sinned, he has bought a lamb as a sacrifice. So when the day of judgment comes, whereabouts are all of his sins? They're in here. The day of judgment comes and they're all blotted out with the blood of the goat. So, is there any record that he's ever done anything wrong anywhere in the universe? No. Is God powerful? Can God speak things into existence? Can God speak things into non-existence? Now, if I ask you to forget about elephants for the next 30 seconds, how many of you are going to be able to do that? You're not, right? It's impossible. But what if, what if God decided to forget about elephants for 30 seconds? Is he actually capable of doing that? Yes, because he's God. The Bible says that God will forget our sins. And he actually can. 
He has that capability. And so we might, you know, go to God and like, oh, you know, it's like, I don't remember those sins. Why? Because we've, forget, we've confessed them, they've been forgiven, they're covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, and in the judgment, the record is blotted out. When, when you get to heaven, you, can, you are more than welcome to read the, the, uh, the history of my life. When we all get there, go and read the history of my life. Because the only things that you'll see in there are the righteous things that Jesus did through me. If you were to go there right now, no, I don't want you reading that. There are a lot of things I'm embarrassed about, right? Okay? But in the judgment, it is all blotted out. There's no record that this guy has done anything wrong. All right, what about this guy over here? Um, he's done some sins as well. And he decided not to bring a lamb. And the day of judgment comes. Whereabouts are his sins? Whereabouts are his sins? Gone. Whereabouts are his sins? On him. That's why it's the day of judgment. It divides between those who have confessed their sins and those who have not confessed their sins. It is that simple. All right, so let me ask you a couple of questions then. Uh, who is the judge? God. I've got some people saying God. I've got some people saying Jesus. Jesus is God. So let's be specific. Which member of the Godhead? We've got some disagreement in the room. This is good. I like it. Okay, let's go to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John. Uh, I'm going to show you something here that's quite amazing because the judgment in heaven is actually rigged. Did you know that? It's rigged in your favor, which is a really good thing. John chapter 5 and verse 21, Jesus says this for... No, verse 22, sorry. For the Father judges no man but has committed all judgment to the Son. So, who does the judging in the, in, in the judgment in heaven? Jesus does the judging. All right. Uh, and if you were go to, going to go to court here on this earth, you would have, uh, you you'd go and pay somebody to be your defense uh, lawyer, your attorney, whatever it might be, barrister. I'm not a law person. But you would pay someone to defend you, right? Do you have such a person in the judgment in heaven? Yes, an advocate, and that's found in? You do remember correctly. Thank you very much. Well done. Go to the top of the class. Um, okay, so we have an advocate in heaven. So we've got somebody who's defending us, and the same person is judging us, and the same person wants to be our best friend. Has anybody here ever been to court and stood before a judge? I have. I lost my license. I tried to get it back. I failed. Um, <coughs> but I kind of think that if I'd have known the magistrate and we'd have been mates, I might have got off. Definitely wouldn't have deserved it, but I might have got off, right? Okay, so let's think about the judgment in heaven then. The judge is the same person as your defender, who is the same person who is your best friend, can you be in a better judgment than that? No, you can't be in a better judgment than that. That's the kind of judgment that I want to be involved in. Okay, so here's another, uh, an, an, another um, aspect to this particular thought. If Jesus is our judge, and Jesus is our best friend, and Jesus is our defender... We can't lose in that judgment. But why does God actually have to have a judgment? 
Doesn't God already know who's saved and who's lost? Okay. And why is that important? Uh-huh. And the reason it could raise questions is because we have the power of choice, right? If we didn't have the power of choice, it would never raise questions because we would not be able to question. You know, we've got fancy uh, self-driving cars these days. One of them got pulled over the other day for not having its headlights on. And it was obedient, pulled over when it saw the flashing lights and then the coppers turned up and you can watch it on the badge cams. Like, wait a minute, did somebody just do a runner here? There's no, nobody driving it. Um, crazy world in which we live. But does that self-driving car have the power of choice? No, it sees the flashing lights. It's going to pull over because that's what it's programmed to do doesn't have the power of choice. So because we have the power of choice, so can that self-driving car question the coppers like, oh, why'd you pull me over for? I wasn't doing anything wrong. Can it do that? No. Because we have the power of choice, we're able to question. And the reason we have the power of choice is because God is love. And the power of choice is what creates the possibility, the existence of love. Can that self-driving car love its owner or anyone else? Nope, it's absolutely impossible. It might be incredibly intelligent, but it can't love because it doesn't have the power of choice. And God will never take away the power of choice. Therefore, God has a judgment, not to find out who's saved and who's lost, but so that we can have confidence in the decisions that God has made. All right, here's another thought. I'm going to have to finish up here in a minute. I'm watching the time. I have to go on to our next subject because we need to find out when the judgment begins, right? Uh, because we believe that Jesus is coming back soon and the judgment is taking place before Jesus comes back. By the way, why, was, why is it necessary for the judgment to take place before Jesus comes back? Yes, so that he knows who to save and who to condemn, right? Well, even more importantly, so that when he does save some and he does condemn some, the universe that has been looking on knows that what he has done has been the right thing. And they don't have questions. You see, the purpose of the judgment is all about eradicating sin so that it will never, ever, ever come back again. And if you leave a seed of doubt somewhere in an eternal universe where people live for eternity, a seed of doubt will at some point in the next billion years or whatever, it will germinate and sin will come back again. And so God holds the judgment, the Bible says that He holds it in open court in heaven before He comes back so that the universe can see that God is just, God is righteous, God is loving, God is all merciful and all doubt is removed from the universe. It's a wonderful system that God has put in place to get rid of sin so that it never comes back again and so that he never has to take away the power of choice. Thank you for listening to Adventism 101. If you like this talk, make sure you tell your friends. You can subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or wherever you're listening right now. This conversation was brought to you from the North New South Wales Evangelism Team and recorded during Big Camp 2022.